0: Good morning.
1: Good morning. morning.
0: So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we again are thankful to come before you and to uh, be able to study together and to celebrate what you have done for us. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, lead us to ever greater understanding of uh, your purposes for our life, where you're leading at this time in history, that we may fulfill fulfill your purpose. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we are doing in our quarterly... Uh, on Death, Dying, and the Future, Hope, Lesson 14, uh, one of those rare times we have a 14th lesson. And the title is, a, um, is All Things New, All Things New. And our memory text comes from Revelation 21.5, and it says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Isn't that a great promise? Aren't we looking forward to all things being new? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Have you uh, considered, though, what it means to make all things new? Jesus says, I make all things new as it's rendered in the New King James we just read. I make all things new. Is that current or is that speaking of a future time when in the future, Revelation 21, he makes all things new?
1: He's making us us new.
0: Oh, I like what you guys are saying. Here's how it says it in the NIV. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Oh. I am making everything new. Making everything new uh, it sounds a little different than I make all things new. Um, and, and the tense, is it future or is it active today?
1: Oh. Making. Active, active, active. active. active.
0: It's active, that's right So when we think about, when you hear the promise I make all things new, I'm making all things new Is the focus of that promise primarily upon the inanimate materials Like the rocks and stars and moons and cities paved with gold and gates of pearls Or, or is the focus really upon the living beings Upon removing sin from us and making us new yeah. Yeah. Where's the real focus?
1: There, at the heart.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if God has the power, which he does, to make all things new, why hasn't he already done it? Why wait so long?
1: Because we have to have willing hearts. He's not going to do it against our will. Not yet.
0: Yes, so can God cleanse the universe of sin by might and power? No. I heard a lot of mumbling with that one. <laughs> not according to his laws. Yeah, <clears throat> so... How would you describe sin? What is sin?
1: Selfishness. Selfishness.
0: Selfishness, okay. Rebellion, distrust, disloyalty, driven by fear, driven by lies. Can God, by using greater amounts of physical might and power, threats and even execution for, for the rebellious, can he, by using those methods, remove fear, distrust, and rebellion? No, it only in, in, in instills it. So, so, and it ultimately destroys the very attributes God wants in us. He wants, uh, he does not want robots. He has the power to make a universe of robots that simulate life, but are not really alive. And if you had the power to build a world in which you lived all by yourself with millions of robots that simulate life, but only follow the algorithms you program them to, would you be able to love and be loved by them? You know, see, God doesn't want to pretend universe. He wants, he doesn't want to live in self-delusion where he deludes himself with, with robots that look like living beings. He wants a universe of reality in which intelligent beings actually know him, appreciate him, love him for who he is because he is worthy. He is loyal. He is faithful. He is true. We value Him, and we live in a world and a universe of freedom. That's what he wants. And he wants us to know him like loving parents want their children to know them and appreciate them. Not because the parent wants to be worshipped, but because the parent wants intimacy, understanding, friendship, faithfulness, loyalty, and trust with their children. And for us, there's another reason, though, that God wants this intimate relationship with us for us to know him, to be close to him and appreciate him. And that's the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. By being intimate with God, the source of all truth, the source of all perfection and love, by admiring and being close to him, we become like him. We're changed and transformed in that process. If we substitute anything but the truth and experience with the true God with anything else, it degrades us. And Paul says this in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and their minds became dark and depraved and futile. And so, Satan's primary strategy uh, is to represent God as an imperial dictator, a rulemaker, Uh, from whom we need to be protected, but we can worship him while we live in fear of him. And thus, we never truly come to know him. Number one, we're not really connected because we won't open the heart because we have to have an intercessor to stand between us and and him to protect us. And two, we become like that God. And we think it's virtuous and righteous to make up rules and use power to, to seek justice. And you see this happening in the world today. People are religious, but they're religious with their rules And what they find security in, and you'll see this if you talk to people, their security is in legal payments made to God, not in actually knowing God. And if you suggest that payments weren't necessary, they get very angry because you're taking away their security. What makes them feel safe? Jesus experienced this and so did the apostles. So first paragraph says the following. Scripture gives us this hope. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous in which righteousness dwells. What do you hear the message to be from this passage? What's the future hold from from the biblical worldview?
1: New heaven and earth.
0: A new heaven and a new earth recreated or created by God. Is there a competing philosophy? Different than this view of the future that's overtaking the world right now.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, uh, the green movement is the idea that climate change is threatening the planet. The idea that humans are a problem and that if we don't act, our future is self-destruction and destroying the planet. That's That's the climate change movement. It comes from godlessness. It comes out of an evolutionary worldview. And the godless worldview proclaims that the future of humanity without our acting to do something is self destruction. That is a different message than the biblical one. Does one of the two views bring hope while the other view brings fear and hopelessness? Yes.
1: Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Does one view of the two views Uh, lead people to help others to to seek out for fellowship and friendship and unity to be a blessing in their community to sacrifice uh to to uplift others and and does the other view lead people to see others as competitors as polluters as devourers of resource that need to be restricted or controlled
1: Yes. yes right yes
0: Does one view value people more than the planet while the other view values the planet more than people?
1: (laughs) I don't even think they do
0: that. Now, I've said this many times in here but because I've simply reasoned out the philosophies and the goals. But recently I came across some documentation uh, from those who hold the the green uh, movement worldview that actually confirms what I've concluded based on just understanding the philosophies. Um, Alex Epstein, in his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, F- Fuels writes the following. And he is not a, uh, an environmentalist. He's exposing it. And he's going to quote one of these environmentalist, uh, bios- they call themselves biocentrists. Um, but this is what he writes first, and we'll get to the quote. Many leading environmentalist thinkers, environmental thinkers, including those who predict fossil fuel catastrophe, hold as their standard of value what, what they call pristine nature or wilderness. And uh, Epstein's standard of value is human thriving and human well-being. Human beings are our standard of value, and protecting and uplifting them is one value that we seek. But the environmentalists hold what's called pristine nature or wilderness as their value. And continuing with the, with the quote, nature unaltered by man. For example, in Los Angeles Times Review, and he goes on to s- describe a, a, um, a reporter named Graber um, summarizing McGibbons, who is this environmentalist, book. And this is the, the quote now from the, uh, from the, from the article. Uh, not, from, not from Epstein, but he's quoting now another person. McGibbons is a biocentrist, and so am I. We are not interested in the unity of a particular species or free-flowing river or ecosystem for mankind or to mankind. They have intrinsic value more value to me than another human being or a billion of them. Human happiness and certainly human fecundity, that means human fertility and reproduction, uh, human fecundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature. And it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, at about a billion years ago, maybe half that, We quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the Earth. It is cosmically unlikely that the developed world will choose to end its orgy of fossil energy consumption and the third world its suicidal consumption of landscape. Until such time as Homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Wow. Okay? And then Epstein goes on to describe a little more. This is from Epstein's book, what he's writing, and he's got one little quote again from McGibbon. It says in his book, McGibbon wrote that our goal should be a humbler world, one where we have less impact on our environment and, quote, Human happiness would be of secondary importance, end quote. What is of primary importance minimizing our impact on the environment? McGibbon explains. This is, again, quote from McGibbon. Though not in our time and not in the time of our children or their children, if we now today limit our numbers and our desires and our ambitions, perhaps nature could someday resume its independent working. And he ends that quote, and then Epstein finishes. This implies that there should be fewer people with fewer desires and fewer ambitions. This is the exact opposite of holding human life as one standard of value. It is holding human non-impact as one standard of value without regard for human life and happiness. And that's the end of that quote. This is really the philosophy of the green. The planet is more valuable than people. A billion people are not as important as a stream or a river in some little piece of the world. And if we have to kill a billion people in order to save some little section of the environment, then that is a, a higher priority. This is the way they think. There's a real difference between the biblical worldview and the green worldview. It's, the green worldview is godless. It's part of Satan's end time deception to trip good, trick good people into participating with their own destruction. And as everything Satan does, it's based on lies and misinformation. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. To grow the human population and make the planet ours. To put our imprint upon the planet. Yes, we are not to destroy the earth. We're not to abuse and exploit. But we are definitely to develop the earth and put our imprint upon it. In this world of sin... It would mean making the planet more human-friendly, doing everything we can for human health and thriving, again, without willful destruction and abuse. The Green Movement is the opposite. The intention is to curb human growth, curb human population, limit human development, limit human uh, dominion, and to really return us back to very animalistic cave-dwelling-type experience. This is what we're dealing with in the world today. Any questions about that? Please. So Sunday's lesson. Sunday's asked us to read Isaiah sixty-five seventeen through 25. And this is out of the NIV. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight And it's people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He uh, he who dies at a 100 will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will enjoy will long enjoy the works of their hand. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all of my holy mountains, says the Lord. What do you think of this passage? Do we take it literally? Is this how it's going to be? No. No. Or do we interpret it? Do we seek out the meaning? Will we have memory of what Jesus did for us? Or will we have no recollection? We won't have any knowledge of the of the struggles. We won't remember the cross. We won't remember the victory over sin. Nothing will come to mind about this, this world. Do we take that literal? No. no. Or will we remember if we simply won't focus on it because we won't have to focus on treating the sickness of sin anymore because we're already cured from it? It won't be our priority, but we certainly will have knowledge of it. What about people dying before 100 being considered a curse? Will people still be dying in heaven? No. 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 So what's meant by this? Making a point. I don't
1: know.
0: (laughs) Well, there are several possible interpretations, and uh, they're not contradictory. One is that it is a blended prophecy like Matthew 24 when Jesus talked about destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming, that he is talking about if literal Israel in the Old Testament would have fulfilled their purposes, they would have experienced long life, longevity in this mortal body living to be 100, uh, which was quite profound at that day. The average life expectancy during the time of Israel was 45 to 50 years of age for most people. And so if they would have followed the Lord's, Plan and lived in harmony with his designs. he's saying that most of them would have lived to be a hundred, and anybody dying before a 100 would have been considered accursed. Uh, yet uh, they also would have, have would, would experience the blessings of a new heaven and an earth and eternal life. So this is a blended prophecy of, of ancient Israel fulfilling their purpose and ultimately receiving the uh, new heaven and the new earth. And another interpretation is it's a word picture describing the joys of multi-generational family living, that grandparents and parents and grandchildren will all be together in the new heaven and the new earth and it will be with our families. And it's designed to bring that comfort and that joy uh, to families to know we'll be there with our family and it's not to be taken literally. Um, additionally, there won't be war and there won't be pillage and there won't be ravenous animals destroying and so forth. So either way, I think it's a, a message of encouragement and I don't think we need to be confused by it. Questions about that? Next, let's compare this, what we just read, with Isaiah 35, same author, Isaiah 35, 8 through 10. Listen to this and see if you have any concerns. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So which is it? No lions or lions that eat straw? Do we take this literal? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Or is this another one of those places that the message to a people who actually had to live in fear of being attacked on the road by ferocious beasts like lions, they're being reassured that there'll be no ferocious beasts there. Whether there's, uh, there'll either be no lion, meaning no ferocious beast to tear and ravage you, or if there are, they'll eat straw like a lamb. Either way, it's really just communicating the idea that this will be a different world in which this predator- pray-type environment we live in now will not exist. And I think that's really what the message is about. Uh, Third paragraph says, however, that plan did not materialize as expected. Then a new plan was established, but now with the church, composed of Jews and Gentiles from all nations. The prophecies of Isaiah, therefore, have to be reread from the perspective of the church. Did God have two plans of salvation? Or, or one?
1: one? One.
0: Does God today have a different plan of salvation for those who are the genetic descendants of Jacob than for the rest of humanity?
1: No. Is that what they're saying?
0: This is a common, this is a common teaching in Christianity. It's commonly taught that, that genetic descendants of Jacob are saved in a different way than everyone else. And there's a different path for them. It's not. There is... God created one human race in Adam. Eve was an extension of Adam. Adam and Eve sinned and every human being are a descendant of Adam. Eve born with a sin condition that Adam and Eve brought upon us. And Christ came as the second Adam to take the burden of that condition upon himself, overcome and establish a new humanity. And we're either grafted into the vine, Jesus Christ, and receive the new life from him or not there's only one plan of salvation when the ge- genetic descendants of abraham and isaac and jacob did not fulfill their mission god continued his plan carrying it out with people who were willing to carry it forward it was always one plan monday's lesson what is your understanding of the temple of god now,
1: I'm We
0: are mine. We are. The heavenly temple, the heavenly sanctuary. The problem I have seen most commonly when talking to people about this question, particularly in the Adventist church, Mm -hmm. the cleansing of the sanctuary, cleansing from sin, the plan of salvation, is that people get stuck on material, on real estate, on geography, on inanimate matter. And by doing so, on the question of the sanctuary, this is what they get stuck on. And by doing so, they misconstrue the entire object lesson. They misconstrue the problem of sin and God's amazing amazing solution for it. So as we have this discussion about the heavenly sanctuary, let's establish some baseline points of agreement as foundational truths. I'm going to list some of these. God is a real being who created a real universe made out of real physical matter operating under real physical laws. Yes. Yes, this is a foundational truth. In God's universe, there are real physical cosmic structures, stars, planets, moons, comets. In heaven... There are also real physical structures, buildings of various kinds that are made out of real physical materials. Whether they're the streets of gold or the gates of pearls or, or whatever we want to call them, there are real physical structures in heaven. God also made real living intelligent beings who are also made out of physical materials of various kinds. Our bodies are made out of carbon and hydrogen and iron and calcium and other chemicals. We have real physical bodies. So any discussion about the meaning of the heavenly sanctuary in the context of the plan of salvation in no way invalidates physical structures and realities that God has built his universe upon. Many people get into this either or when we go down the trail of what this is actually trying to teach us. But with all of this physical structure in mind, let's ask some questions and, you, and you, should, you can get my notes and you can take these. Go to some people uh, that you know and ask some of these questions. So here's some of the questions. When Lucifer rebelled in heaven, began his rebellion in heaven, was it his goal that he seek to occupy a building made out of inanimate material? Was the issue, the rebellion in heaven, one of real estate, of occupying some castle or temple, or facility in heaven? Was that his goal? No. no. Can molecules of gold or silver sin? No. no. Can inanimate materials joined together by God and constructed into buildings sin? No. Can sin happen outside of living beings? Is there some mechanism or means whereby a living sinner can have their sin or sinfulness or sins physically removed from them like some pathogenic bacteria and have that sin placed on some heavenly surface and have that structure of inanimate material become contaminated with their sin?
1: They are so ridiculous.
0: (laughs) When we confess our sins and receive God's grace and forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus, do our sins somehow get physically removed from us and placed in a heavenly test tube, a heavenly Petri dish, or some specimen bottle, or some book, or parchment, or hard drive, or some heavenly stasis field that is now contaminated, corrupted, filled with the worst filth and necrotic vileness of the universe? Is there some heavenly sin-filled sewer system festering and overflowing with all the sins being confessed and causing contamination that jesus needs to contaminate and cleanse do you understand that is the adventist message that there is all this contamination in the building in heaven somewhere that jesus has to cleanse
1: wouldn't that mean that that there's sin in heaven if all that contamination was in heaven
0: so that's the question wouldn't it yes you could ask that question but, but this, this is how it's often... Pre- is it not presented this way, folks?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when we speak of a temple in heaven, in the context of the plan of salvation, are we actually speaking of the physical structures built out of inanimate materials that now contain some vileness and sinfulness that Jesus is going around spraying his blood upon in order to cleanse and decontaminate the surfaces in heaven? Oh, no. No. That's exactly how it's often presented. There's some recording device in heaven. Our sins get put up there. The heavenly sanctuary is now contaminated by our confessed sins and Jesus has to go and remove them and that, and all of this is inanimate. It's, it's some building. But consider this. this. When the Bible describes in Ezekiel 28, 17 and 18 the fall of Lucifer in heaven, quote, your heart... Became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you out of heaven. I made you a spectacle before kings, but your many sins and dishonest trade have desecrated your sanctuaries. Oh, wow!
1: That's sad. Your sanctuaries.
0: What does this mean? Satan desecrated his sanctuaries? Is the Bible saying that some physical pathogen was created in a laboratory by Satan with some gain-of-function research? (laughs) And he released it into the environment and that Lucifer's physical domain, his place of personal rectitude, his home, his safe space his sanctuary was physically contaminated is that what the bible is describing here No. well something got contaminated desecrated it's called his sanctuaries and what was it in the same text that the bible said became proud and corrupted his heart and his wisdom his heart and mind became corrupted his heart and mind. And, and what does the Bible describe as the new covenant experience?
1: I will write my laws on the hearts and their minds.
0: So in the old temple that we take as a model of the heavenly temple, in the old sanctuary, there's a most holy place. And what was kept in the most holy place?
1: The Ark of the Covenant.
0: Mm. The Ark of the Covenant. And what was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant?
1: The budding rod.
0: Man of law. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's right. All of those things, including the law of God, but in the new covenant, He writes His laws where?
1: In our hearts and minds. Yes.
0: In our hearts and minds. In our sanctuary. Try
1: it. It's your body
0: is. The Bible is describing how pride and selfishness that took root in Satan's heart and mind. Contaminated or desecrated his sanctuaries, the inmost place, the sacred place where the Spirit of God is to dwell, where God's presence is to live, where God's design methods are to be written and to direct in the activities of our thoughts and decisions. Tim, yeah.
1: hmm. question
0: yeah.
1: over there. Oh, I yes. I get excited when you talk about this because this is what I went through five and a half years ago. Um, I was ate up with bitterness and unforgiveness, and even to the point that it was pure hatred. And I was contaminated. I was the one that was ate up with it. So when God got through to me and I quit resisting Him and I let Him come in, He cleansed me that night of all of that, from a lifetime of that, actually. So I went from being an alcoholic to he completely flipped me in here upside down, and now I have a hunger and thirst for God's word, where before my thirst was to take care of my own pain my own way, with alcohol and drugs or whatever. And I saw so many things change in me, and it wasn't me that had some great you know, power, it was the fact that I let him come in here and do a work in me. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. 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 Well said. And that's exactly right. Your sanctuaries were contaminated with bitterness and anger and hurt. And now your inmost being, your, your sacred spaces of your heart and soul have the Holy Spirit dwelling in there, bringing you the principles of God, peace, joy, love, and so forth. That's exactly what the cleansing of the sanctuary is all about. So as we think about this, and this is important, I will tell you, so many good Adventist folks are completely stuck in literalism because of the imposed law model. But think, can sin happen in wood and gold? No. Then can the cleansing of the sanctuary happen by cleansing wood and gold? No, no. no it's not about the little box in heaven. Does Satan seek To possess more wood and gold or to possess hearts and minds.
1: Hearts and minds. minds.
0: So notice what Paul wrote in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. What does this mean? What temple?
1: We worship him and not God.
0: So how is this man of lawlessness able to set himself up in God's temple?
1: Lies. And deception.
0: Is this... Man of lawlessness, setting himself up in God's temple, any way connected with the cleansing of the sanctuary end-time message? Yes. 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 Uh-huh. What's the connection? How is what Paul's describing here, that this man of lawlessness sets himself up in God's temple, how is that connected with the, the message of God through Daniel and other places that the sanctuary must be cleansed? What's the connection? Cleanse just that,
1: him. Satan wants our him. hearts to belong to him instead of God.
0: Okay, and how did he do it? How did he get Christian people to enthrone Satan into their hearts while they claim to be worshiping Jesus? I'm serious. Sorry. They don't even know. We don't even know we're
1: doing it. Yeah, the wrong law.
0: The wrong law, I heard somebody say. That's exactly right. He replaced, in Christian thought, The truth of God's design law, with the idea that God's law works no differently than Rome imposed rules, and therefore, many anybody who holds the view that God's law works like human law concludes that justice is the rule giver or, or legal authority using power to punish rule breakers. That's. Satan's character. Satan is the source of pain, suffering, and death. But in the penal model, God is the source of pain, suffering, and death. He tortures and then uses power to kill the wicked in the end. Thus, people who worship that God are actually not worshiping the God Jesus revealed. This is how he does it. He contaminates their hearts and minds. And by beholding, we become changed and we are willing to burn people at the stake in the name of our God, or to drown witches in the name of our God, or many other atrocities that people are willing to do to coerce consciences because it, after all, it's got a higher cause. We're saving lives, we're saving the planet or whatever else we're seeking to do. So the cleansing of the sanctuary at the end time is not about cleansing inanimate structures. It's about cleansing hearts and minds from lies about God and all of the negative consequences that come from believing them. Fear, selfishness, coercion, force, deceit, intimidation, anger, resentment, shame, guilt, It's cleansing us from all of this. And we describe this in our new magazine, uh, The Wedding of Christ to His Bride, Preparing the Church for the Second Coming. So if you haven't gotten some to share or read, they're in the back out there in the lobby. Get some, or if you live at the U.S. Postal Address, uh, ask for, for one, email us, and we'll send it to you. Or if you're online, you can download the PDF and or the flip book and read it online. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph, reads, The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light and that no one has ever seen God. Does this mean that the saints in heaven will never see God, the Father? Not at all. It is quite evident that not seeing God refers to the human beings after the fall because there are several indicators in scripture that the saints will actually see him in heaven. Does the unapproachable light mean that we can't physically see God in the new heaven or new earth or does it mean something else?
1: Something, Something else. else.
0: Something else. Yes. We will see God in, a, in some aspect of physical form that he chooses to manifest himself in. But when we see him, will we be able to enter into the fullness of infinite power and infinite knowledge? No. 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 No, and so that's what it means unapproachable light is that light is a metaphor for truth and finite beings can't assimilate and process infinite knowledge and infinite truth. And so no matter how much of his physical being we're able to appreciate and see, we will still never actually enter into infinity or approach infinity. The thing about infinity is for all eternity future, we will be moving closer to God, we'll be learning more about God we will grow and mature and, and assimilate truths that we currently don't understand about God. Our knowledge base and experience of God will expand. And after a million years of that expansion, how much more is still in front of us?
1: A lot. <laughs>
0: an infinite amount. Infinity never gets less. If if it has an endpoint, some point that we can actually come to that there's no more to grow, learn or assimilate, it's not infinite. The point being is, we never enter infinity. No matter how much we assimilate and grow, there's still an infinite more elements of God that we still haven't fully uh, come to understand and appreciate. And the Bible suggests this in Revelation 19:12, when it describes Jesus quote has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself unquote. Remember, in Bible, name means character. And, and and so this idea of name is not a monogram, it's not a word, it's not a label. It's about the the infinite character or representation of Christ that no one can fully know the full elements of God's and Christ's character because there's always more outside of our reach. So we won't know his full infinite self, but we will know elements of it. Bottom pink section of the lesson asks us to read 1 Peter one twenty two, and then asks, how does this text reveal to us the link between obedience and purification? And the text is, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from, from the heart. Does this question that the lesson asked and the Bible text Trigger anything in your mind? The link between obedience and purification and purify yourself by obeying
1: brings you to the law, the difference in the law.
0: Are there any other similar texts? Remember Jesus saying, If you love me, you'll keep
1: my commandments. commandments.
0: Keep my commandments. Uh, can we get more love by commanding people to love us? <laughs> Well, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or are the Ten Commandments really the Ten Suggestions? Oh. Mm. <laughs> Command, get more love. No. Um, the, the real issue is understanding what obedience is. Mm. When you hear the word obey or obedience, tell me what that means. What's the common, most most common understood meaning when somebody says obey or obedience. I hate my rules. Follow the law. Isn't it performance-based, conduct-based?
1: <laughs> performance.
0: Yeah? Yeah. 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 It's, about, it's about how we conduct ourselves, okay? That's the common meaning. That's not the biblical meaning, actually. But what happens because we've accepted the human law model, we've accepted this idea of obedience as doing or behaving, following the right rules. The actual Greek word translated obedience and obey is hypo uh, Hypo, the first half we get hypo from like hypoglycemia and hypotensive. And it means under or humble or low. And okue, we get acoustical from or acoustic. And it means listening. And so biblical obedience simply means if you're an obedient person in God's eyes, you have a humble willingness to listen to God and be corrected. Your heart is open to have the errors removed and you have a love for truth in your heart. The obedient are not the people who have all the right rules and have the perfect performance in physical manifestations or carrying out tasks and deeds. That is not who the obedient are. The obedient are those who have a willingness to listen and be corrected and follow the truth as it is revealed to them in ways they can comprehend and understand. It's a heart that's not prideful or arrogant. Remember Satan's sin was one of pride and arrogance? He couldn't be corrected anymore. He was disobedient. So the obedient are not those who know all truth. Only God knows all truth. The obedient are not those whose doctrines are most correct. Now, does that trouble you? If I say the, the obedient Christians are not those who have the most accurate biblical doctrines. Would you feel uncomfortable with that? No. no,
1: Not anymore.
0: (laughs) Well, think about the Jews who crucified Christ. Yeah. (laughs) Who had better doctrinal truths? Those who demanded Christ die or the centurion who recognized he was the son of God? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Or the Samaritan woman? Who had better doctrinal truths? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not about even having the correct doctrines, which we may have. They were not obedient. They were disobedient. But they had the right doctrines. They had the right Sabbath. They had the right diet message. They had the right sanctuary. They had the right feast days. They had the right Bible. And on and on we go. But they were disobedient because they had hearts that could not be corrected. And every time Christ tried to teach them the true meaning They hardened their hearts. They rejected and would not be, they would not listen. And this is why the Bible describes that in several different ways. Stiff-necked. It means stubborn. Hard-hearted. Hearts of stone. Callous. This is all the same thing. Wednesday's lesson, fourth paragraph. We can trust that in the final judgment, God will treat every single human being with fairness and love. All our loved ones who died in Christ will be raised from the dead to be with us throughout eternity. Those unworthy of eternal life will finally cease to exist without having to live in an unpleasant heaven or in an ever-burning hell. Our greatest comfort derives from the fair way God treats everyone. When death Definitely cease when death definitely ceases to exist. The redeemed will shout joyfully. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Any questions? Any concerns about the final judgment, the final end of the wicked? What does God do to the unrepentant wicked at the end?
1: Let them go. That's right. So
0: from last week's lesson, on this same subject, we didn't get to it, in Wednesday of last week, this is what uh, what the paragraph says on page 208. God's goodness and long forbearance, his patience and mercy exercised to his subjects will not hinder him from punishing the sinner who refused to be obedient to his requirements. It is not for a man, a criminal against God's holy law, Pardoned only through the great sacrifice he made in giving his son to die for the guilty because his law was changeless to dictate to God. Ellen G. White, Manuscript, Volume 12, page 208. This is from last Wednesday's lesson. What do you think? Pretty straightforward, clear? (laughs) Sounds Right. right. Well,
1: Tim from my understanding it's not what i'm learning is it's not that god's um, punishing them he's just showing his glory he's unveiling his glory his character to the unrepentant and to the repentant uh-huh. and we get the unve- we get the unveiling of that glory on a daily basis when god shows us something in our hearts and we give it to him to cleanse and purify. So we, both of us get it. But we get it in healing doses as we accept his diagnosis and process.
0: Russell. What's the date on that manuscript release? I, I don't know. I just yeah. copied it out of the lesson and it doesn't have the date. So I didn't look it up from its original source to know. Uh, God's goodness and long-suffering and long-forbearance, his patience and mercy exercised to us, will not hinder him from punishing the sinner who refused to be obedient to his requirements. He's
1: just From the sinner's
0: Yes, yes, Happy.
1: Uh, he will not need to punish them just to hurt them. But I come back again uh, to what I was mentioning last week he may need to punish them as a way to discipline them and to teach them not to do that again because to make them aware that it's going to be a bad thing for them if they do it again.
0: Oh, I, I, I like the idea of what you're saying there, which is God's discipline, that he disciplines those he loves to teach us not to do it again. But 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 that type of intervention is not what's being discussed here, because what's being discussed here is the eternal demise. There's no learning. There's no repentance. There's no being disciplined not to do it again. This is the punishing of the end of time. So that type of intervention, yes, God does, but but they're not learning anything from this. They're not being taught not to do it anymore to be better people. No,
1: the from their perspective, it is punishment. It's not punishment from God's perspective.
0: So I, I want to. I, I, I brought this back because I want us to learn how to handle these quotes when when certain penal legal theologians want to. They'll they'll pull stuff like this and they'll throw it at you, and, and and they take it very literally and they'll put it in your face and they'll say, "Do you believe this or not?" And if you're an Adventist, well, you better because this is from Ellen. Okay. <laughs> And if you don't, they immediately discount you. And so the question is not whether the wicked receive punishment. The question are about the methods, means, and how it comes about. They do receive punishment. They absolutely do. The question, though, and this is where the penal legal view and Satan's view, which he always does, He turns it upside down and backward. Understand God's use of power. God has been using his power from the moment Adam and Eve sinned to stop pain, suffering, and destruction that sin brings. He has been holding at bay principalities, powers of darkness. He has created an artificial bubble of reality that the earth now floats in shielded from his full life-giving glory he's been restraining and so he's been using his power even at the cross when at when Jesus and the father allowed the wicked to kill Jesus they restrained or stopped exercising power but at the same time they didn't exercise power to discipline or to hurt or to harm, they exercised power to keep Christ's natural divinity veiled.
1: That's right.
0: Because had they unveiled his natural, inherent, equal to the Father's divinity, it would have destroyed those. So even at the cross, God was exercising power to hold at bay the destruction that their evil would naturally bring them. The natural state of things in God's universe is that Jesus and the Father radiate infinite truth and love from their person that looks to us like fire. And the, uh, and the, nat- and the natural state is that all holy beings are filled with God's life-giving presence and they also radiate that glory. Every time you see an angel that isn't simply manifesting in human form, they always are described as these flames of brilliant fire and radiating glory that human beings in our current state are very uncomfortable to be around. And they always say, fear not, fear not. They reassure, but they radiate. Adam and Eve, before their fall, were clothed in this life-giving glory. Uh, God has been restraining, using power, to restrain or hold at bay what sin does for the purpose of saving us from sin. In Revelation, you see that the four angels who are described in Revelation 7, four angels at the four corners of the earth are described as having power to harm the land and the sea and the fountains of water. And what What is the action they take that causes the harm? Letting go. go. They let go what they're holding back. So the power of God's agencies, he is using his power to hold back what causes harm, not to use power to cause harm. And so the punishment comes when God finally sets free the wicked to reap what they have chosen when he stops using his power to hold it at bay. And so when you put that together, then this punishment that comes upon the wicked comes from sin, wages of sin is death, sin when full grown brings forth death. It doesn't come from God and God's been holding it at bay. And the same author who described that type of that that sentence from Ellen White, let me read some other comments from her. And this is what the people who hold the penal legal view don't understand. They don't understand design law. They don't understand God's use of power. And they don't don't actually harmonize the totality of the inspired record. But here's from Testimony, Volume 5, page 120. God destroys no one. The sinner destroys himself by his own impenitence. When a person once neglects to heed the invitation, reproofs, warnings of the Spirit of God, his conscience becomes seared, and the next time his... He is admonished it will be more difficult to yield obedience than before. And thus it is, and thus with every repetition. Or, great controversy, page 35. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance. In the utter destruction that befell them as a nation, and in all the woes that followed them in their dispersion, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Said the prophet, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Their sufferings are often represented as punishment visited upon them by direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, And Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. The horrible cruelties enacted in the destruction of Jerusalem are a demonstration of Satan's vindictive power over those who yield to his control. Notice the methods. The punishment came, when, through their persistent rebellion and alienation from God. God stopped using his power to hold at bay what sin does. And they reaped what they sowed. One, here's one more. Here's another one. This is Selected Message, Volume 1, 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts on the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. That's the law of exertion. It's also the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. Worship a false god, exert and exercise certain pathways, they become stronger. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God. They cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Notice that this is design law. This is God's method. He stops using power to hold at bay the destruction that sin brings. Uh, One more. This is manuscript release, volume 14, page 3. And I love the way this one starts, I was shown. So when Ellen White uses words like that, this is just her Bible study. She was given a direct revelation. If you, if you believe that she had the prophetic gift. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. This is the end time judgments, the punishments. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the special, the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea, on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest by both sea and land will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. Notice, he is not restrained. The four angels holding the four winds loosen. Harm comes, not directly from God, comes out from God's enemy. We shall see more terrible manifestations of God's great power, uh, excuse me, of Satan's great power than we have ever dreamed of. Yes, notice God's methods ever since Adam has sinned is to disperse power, to hold at bay what sin naturally does. And when those who have gone beyond the point of, of redemption, they've seared the, the conscience, hardened the heart, no truth, no love, no revelation will have any positive impact upon them, God ceases, he rests, he stops using power and they receive their punishment. And this is flipped completely up on its head with the human penal law model which teaches that if you don't do what God says, that law and justice require that God use his power to bring punishment. So understand this. When you read about God bringing punishment, God brings punishment not by dispensing power, but by ceasing to dispense power that he was using to hold the punishment at bay and allowing the natural results of rebellion and sin to be realized in the life of the one who insists on rejecting God. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you see how clear that is? Yes, yes, Yes. very clear.
0: Yeah. All right, um, let's go ahead and and close with prayer and then we'll do our Q and A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. and We thank you for the truth that you are our creator, our savior, and you have been exercising power to protect us, to hold at bay the enemy, to hold at bay even the full consequences of our own bad choices and rebelliousness to give us opportunity to come to you in repentance, in love, in trust so that you can heal all the damage. And we open our hearts now. We ask for the spirit to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, that we will be healed, restored, settled and sealed at this time in human history that we can be your agents to take this beautiful message of mercy to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.